Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is February the 3rd, 2020, and this is episode 2594 of the Survival Podcast. And I just want to point something out to you. Just, It's time for another one of those jack-kicking-the-ass moments for you about TikTok and the clock. One-twelfth of 2020 is gone, Psh, like a fart in the wind. It's over. It's done. It's over. A twelfth of 2020. If you started listening to this show back when I started, we were in 2008. They even think of 2020 in 2008. seemed like forever away. Well, a twelfth of it is gone. And a quarter of it will be gone in almost no time. All of the plans we're making for our gardens and everything, when spring comes and all that, guess what? About April, aren't we? I mean, I know spring technically starts in March, but we're talking about April. April showers, May flowers, all that goodness. When we get there, that doesn't seem that far away, does it? A quarter of 2020. This is why I've been in my own backyard, you know, busting ass, even though it's cold outside and rainy outside and nasty outside. I don't really want to be there. Because I want to get things done this year. Lots of things done. And whatever those things are for you, whether it's on your homestead, whether it's advancing your career, whether it's building a business, whether it's being a better father, a better mother, a better spouse, whatever it is, whatever the things are on your list that are things that you want to do more of, get on it. And if you don't have a list, get on getting on that. Just a little wake-up call here at the beginning of the show. What are we going to talk about today? i got a really varied lineup for you today. Um, first of all, I'm going to start out with a quote of the day today that's going to punch you in the face, and it's designed to. Uh, then we're going to have a question. Uh, this came in from Instagram from uh, a, a guy that follows me, and it's just an amazing man doing some amazing things. And if this guy asks me a question, he's going to get an answer because this, this man named his kid after me. Uh, but he, he was following me all the way back when we did Perma Ethos and the original plan, which is not what we did. He asked a question. He said, would a crypto token make the original plan work? My answer to that is no but. And, and, and basically I told him on Instagram, no, and I'll do it on the show because it's too complicated for an Instagram answer. We'll talk about that today. Um, can there be a downside to being a tactical prepper? A guy wrote in about that. I don't really understand the situation he's in, but he needs a damn good lawyer because it shouldn't be as big a deal as they're going to make out of it. But it, it's a valid point. Um, Next, I have a question from Tactical Redneck on my current plans for a deep water hydro this spring, the outdoor system I'll be building. It's totally not said stone. We'll talk about it. Question from Marty on the bamboo. He wants to know all about bamboo and uh, translocating and transplanting some bamboo. We'll talk about bamboo from the standpoint of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Ah, that was terrible. I'm sorry. Uh, when is it time to give up on a nonstick skillet or a cracked iron skillet? A cracked iron, a cast iron skill, a cracked iron. That's the problem, a cracked cast iron one. Uh, the right question is to ask for a high-level position as a job candidate. Um, having a backup for 911 services. I know what you're thinking. Well, Jack, if if, if like everything's going so crazy that 911's down, calling the non-emergent, that's not what we're talking about. Different situation altogether. Uh, why doesn't everyone own a sous vide cooker? Hmm, that's a good question. It's not my question for you. It's a question for me, and it's a good one. Uh, can we test food for nutrient density? And I know what some of you are thinking. A refractometer in the bricks. We're going to talk about what bricks really means and why it really isn't the end-all, be-all when it comes to the nutrient density of food. And what is the future of cannabis as it relates to permaculture? 
I actually would really be interested in what Jeff Lawton thinks about that. Well, I might send it on to him, but I will talk a little bit about that as we wrap up today's show. I'll do that more in just a moment. Before we get into that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Safe Castle Royal. I call them the original survival podcast sponsor. Why do I call them that? Because they were the first one. Seems like original and first kind of go together. They were the first pers- uh, first people to sponsor the survival podcast. It's all the way back in 2008 that I was talking about, they wanted to, and I didn't take them on until 2009 because I didn't have like enough people to actually think it was right to take a sponsor. I was like, I'm not taking your money and then not sending you business because then you're not, not going to want to stay a sponsor. That was the right decision because here we are, 2020, 11 years of sponsorship by Safe Castle Royal. Check them out. Everything you could want for your prepping needs, you'll find it all at safecastle.com. Next up today, knifekits.com. Knifekits is an amazing company. If you want to learn how to make knives, start with a kit. It's really easy. You get the stuff that you need, maybe a book or a DVD, look up some YouTube videos. Next thing you know, you're making knives, just simple entry-level knives, and then it can go anywhere you want to from there. I've seen people that never uh, progress beyond the kits, and they still make some amazing knives. That's something I've never really pointed out, but I, I have seen that. What they do is they focus on getting really, really good at the fit and finish work of handles. And I've seen people that all they do is put together kit knives that they maybe have $30 bucks into and routinely sell those knives for $100 to $150. They don't sell a thousand of them. You know, they don't. But they sell two or three a month. It's pretty cool. You need to check them out. Knifekits.com. There's a lot of stuff that you can do at knifekits.com. Uh, also, you can get all the Kydex stuff you want and things like that. Great projects for father, son, you know, father, daughter, etc. Um, really a great way to learn how to use tools, learn how to do things. But yeah, it can be entrepreneurial even at a small side hustle level. Check them out today. Knifekits.com. Uh, with that, let's get into today's show. I want to start out with a quote of the day that is designed to really punch you in the face. Uh, and it's even going to, at some point, sound like a defense of Donald Trump. It's really not. It's just a point, a pointing out of the truth. And it's also kind of, you know, as a, a person that speaks to you as a prepper and tells you to be prepared and often tells you to be calm when other people are telling you to freak out, it's also incumbent upon me to tell you that there are some real threats to our way of life. Now, I want to start out with the quote itself. This comes from James Madison, one of our founders and, and, and known as the father of the Constitution. He said, no nation could preserve its freedom in the midst of continual warfare. No nation could preserve its freedom in the midst of continual warfare. Gee, um, we've been at war for almost 20 consecutive years right now. And I have a simple question for anybody out there that defends that in any way. What is your threshold for continual warfare? We fought... Nazi Germany, Japan, and Italy in about four and a half years to the end of that war for World War II. Our own civil war lasted about five years in total. The American Revolution technically lasted like seven and a half years, but really it was about three to four years of honest-to-God fighting. Twenty years of our soldiers being sent to the Middle East, two main theaters, Iraq and Afghanistan, and we're still there. What is your threshold for continual warfare? Now, here's the part where I really wanted to punch you in the face. And I really want you to, to follow this, and I want you to think about this. Right now, the Democrat House managers that are 
pleading with the Senate to do something they know is never going to happen, remove Donald Trump from office, are falling on their swords and speaking with all the somberness and all the seriousness, and it's, to me it's disgusting, as though they were the founders themselves debating independence itself and looking for consensus to send the Declaration of Independence to the king. That's what they sound like they're doing. They, they Because Donald Trump is such a threat to America. Donald Trump is not a threat to America. And this is not a defense of Trump. Some of you are going to just jump to that. and It's not. Donald Trump is a symptom of how sick the American people are with their government. How little they trust their government. How they will gravitate to anyone who seems like he's not one of them. Even if he is. That's your decision, whether Trump is or not. You guys know I don't vote. I don't tell you how to vote. There's no swaying. Of any, but I'm just telling you, again, the weatherman. This is what I see. The American people put a man like Donald Trump in office with no experience as a politician at all. Zero. First time he ran for office, made him president of the United States. Not because they liked him. Most of the people that voted for Trump do not share a lot of his morals. And they know that. But they did. Because they are fed up with their government. They are fed up with their government. Now we must impeach him because he is a disruption to what we see as common. That is that is really what this comes down to. He's changing shit and we don't like it and we hate him and we want to get rid of him. And with I, I mean, you people that support that, then you better be for impeaching every president that ever was. And some of you are, and then I'm fine with your opinion. Okay? If you're not, then... But for these people to stand and, oh, the, 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 the depth of their despair, the future of America stands. Like, like that kind of grave bullshit over this. While we've spent 20 years bombing other countries and they don't do anything about it except pass a resolution that doesn't mean anything, a rescinding of authorization that's not even really being used that will never survive the Senate anyway, and they know that. While that is what they do, they seek to impeach a president because he held up foreign aid to a country that's closer to Nazi Germany probably than any other country in existence today in the real world. Just so you know, Ukraine is another Nazi Germany waiting to happen. It is... I can't get into it today. It is They are not our ally, other than it's some twisted version of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That is the only way that Ukraine is actually an ally of the United States. They're one of the most corrupt, racist nations on the planet. And my family's from there, so screw off if that offends you. Okay? They are. Foreign aid is bullshit because I don't believe I should be able to send my money to somebody two states over and then beg you to steal from my neighbor to feed my family in the first place. So as long as we have any foreign aid is bullshit too. But you can put all that on the shelf. You want to impeach a president for this while you ignore 20 years of war. And the people that enshrine our founders the most, the, the founders, the founders. The founders. I mean, I'll give the left this. They basically crap on and wipe their ass with the Constitution on a daily basis. They talk about the Constitution as an outdated document. Then they wrap themselves in it when it suits them. right? But at least we know who they are and what they're all about. They have no respect for the Constitution. We know that. We know they're fake. But the right is the, is the group that talks like they genuinely believe what they're saying. 
They generally wrap themselves in the Constitution on a daily basis. And they speak of the founders as though they are one step away from deity. Not deity itself, but one step away. To be listened to. To be spoken about with respect. To even take their flaws and accept them because what they did was so important. Well, here's one of them speaking to you from, from the grave. Your nation cannot preserve its freedom in the midst of continual warfare. We speak about Donald Trump as though he's a threat to America's liberty. While the greatest threat that our founders warned us of, continual warfare, just rages right on and nobody does anything about it. Let me tell you the, the darkness that this represents for us in the future. I do believe that unless like this Kong flu, right, this uh, SARS virus or something goes really nuts and creates some kind of major toppling of the economics of, of the world or something, some kind of major recession, absent something like that or something else that just craters the economy or some sort of crisis yet unforeseen. I mean, it seems like the guy survived anything short of something completely out of left field. Donald Trump is not only going to win re-election, he's going to win re-election not the way Reagan did, but like nobody since Reagan, with, with a stronger mandate than Clinton, Obama, or Bush got. Big time. It's going to be, there's going to be no doubt about it. But we cannot have this bubble of prosperity continue for another four years. There will be a disruption. And the American people will become very dissatisfied with this over the next five years. They really will. And, and everything that goes wrong will be blamed at Trump's feet, whether he's responsible or not. doesn't matter. He will be for some and not for others, but it will all be his fault. People will be angry and disgruntled. And what you need to understand about the political pendulum, and the reason I was able to forecast Trump with such accuracy without knowing who it would be, but for those that are new, I think it was like 2010 the first time I said, Obama will get reelected in a landslide. And in 2016, you will get a right-wing strongman no one could have ever predicted who will get things done no other Republican could have ever gotten done. The reason I'm able to predict that is there's a fundamental to the swinging of the pendulum. And that is the further to the left the pendulum swings, the further to the right it will swing when it comes back. And the further to the right it swings, the further to the left when it comes back. The difference here is unlike a real clock, there's no limit to the distance that we can swing, except that when it swings far enough in either direction, the clock explodes. Well, I'm telling you that I think in 2024, you're going to get a full-on socialist government, not just a socialist president. I think you're going to get someone who is as radically left as Bernie Sanders that will seem a lot more moderate and a lot more palatable to uh, soccer moms and such. The left will learn that lesson in the next four years. I think that it is highly probable by that election that the Senate will be controlled by the Democrats, and if not, the Senate and the House might even be in GOP hands in 2022, but it won't have a huge majority, and it will probably lose both. And You'll probably get all three, the Senate, the House, and the presidency in the hands of Democrats in 2024, and not, not Joe Biden, John Kerry Democrats. As bad as that would be. Now, you're going to get, it won't be AOC, okay, just to be clear. But you're going to get the AOCs of the world in charge. That's what you're going to get. And, I, God, I wish I could tell you that's not true, but that's what you're going to get. And I'll tell you why. Because we will not listen to our founders. 
because we will not listen to our founders. And we will not end these wars in the next four years. And they will still be going on and will still be told they're necessary. And no matter how green, eco, leftist, socialist we go, we'll still continue those wars. No nation will ever preserve its freedom in the midst of continual warfare. If you want to know what our threat to freedom is, it is this concept of not just wars, but wars on ideas. A war on terrorism. There is nothing that is a more open-ended war, a more just a ticket for a never-ending war than a war on an idea. A war on an idea cannot be won. It can never be won. And you might be thinking, but yeah, that's kind of pepsi. No, that's the point. That's the entire reason you declare war on an idea or an ideology, so that you never have to end it. Let's go on to some better stuff, though, because I don't want to get you too down. Let's talk about this uh, idea that I had for Permaethos in the beginning, uh, crypto tokens, how that would play in, why it didn't work, and what somebody would have to do if they wanted to do what I wanted to do, even close to how I wanted to do it. The, the issue is really about the capitalization of money versus the logistics of actually getting the idea done. So the idea was this. We'd find a piece of land somewhere, and your typical community, right? My, the idea for a typical community was, so we, we get everybody together, and then people have a lease, a 99-year lease option. You could sell the land. There's a bunch of ways to do it, but that was my idea because it kept the entry point very low, and there would be like two classes of, of investor, I guess you would say. There would be your general uh, resident, And then there would be your higher level that would spend more money to become part of this. And the exact specifics are unnecessary for, for you to understand this. But your, your group of higher investors, people that, that tendered more cash in the beginning, would make up a council that would make strategic decisions on behalf of the whole. And those would be things that were more like, you know, do we put in um, uh, a common use area or a pond this month with the money that's available to do it? Things like that. And the whole point was that people could have an acre, a half acre, depending on how it worked out, where they could build an off-grid home, and they could live there, or they could commute there, or they could use it as a bug-out location. But it would be a, a, a group of common ideals built around a permaculture ethos of sustainability and regenerative agriculture, etc. This is where <clears throat> the big problems come in with doing that. I can do that right now. No one can legally stop me if I do it this way. I find a piece of land. I go out and buy it. People that are the top-level investors with me are people that I have a relationship with that are not solicited through this show. So I had some pre-existing relationship, or they're accredited investors. So basically, they have a net worth of $2 million bucks, or they meet some other criteria. So if they're accredited investors, or I have a direct relationship with them, which I have a plenty big network to do that with, I can do that. With them. The whole idea was that if you bought into this, and I, I don't remember what the numbers were, but let's say it was $5,000 to get your lot, and then a 99-year lease at $200 a month. And that $200 a month would go then to pay for things like all the infrastructure, the property taxes that the corporation has to pay on the totality of the land. And Again, you'd have to work the numbers out. So there's just spitball numbers there. Um, All of that money <laughs> is, is considered basically revenue and subject to tax. And most of it would be considered profit, and therefore the tax burden would be extreme. 
and most of the money that came into the organization then would be given to the government, a significant amount of it anyway. And then all of the stuff that you do to actually improve the land is not really an expense. It is an improvement. It has to be depreciated over time. And this burns you so hard. So the company, let's say, takes in $100,000, spends $50,000 of it to make the place better for you. And under the rules of taxation and government, that $50,000 has to now be deducted over 30 years instead of right now when we spend it. So we're paying tax on the full $100,000, you know, less other deductions. I'm oversimplifying this. Well, a way to get around this is to do a capitalization. Basically, everybody's buying in. Everybody's a partner. So anybody's, everybody's now tendering money. To do that, you have to basically say, if there's a profit, there is some benefit to the membership. It is returned to you. So there was a whole way that we could put some profit into this. And if there's a profit beyond the needs of the organization, then it's returned as a dividend share to the individuals. That's where everything really went bad. It was the public solicitation. I'm telling you about it on the air, and you're offering me money. Right there, I'm, the FTC wants to put me in jail. But I'm also promising you an ROI. Now I'm really in trouble. And I, and, and I had a pretty good idea for this. I I'd ferreted it out fairly well. There was still more work to be done. But at the first Permaculture Voices conference, a guy that was a big fan, but he was also employed by the FTC, came up to me and said, if you do what you're talking about doing, they will put you in federal prison. And I actually had people come to the audience, you should do it anyway, to hell with them. I'm like, well, you're not the one going to federal prison. I am. I'm not going to federal prison. It's not happening, right? So the question was, if we introduce a crypto token that people can buy into that, does that change the calculus? And no, it doesn't. You're still back to accredited investors, etc. You're still now it is considered definitely under U.S. law security. Could it be done in Switzerland that way? Uh, yeah, yeah. They can toll every country other than the United States, which is supposed to be the freest nation in the world. Every nation I know of, anyway, except the nations that have you know outlawed crypto. Every modern nation, um, you could pretty much get completely around this by using a crypto token. But the United States is now considered a security and subject to security regulations. And the cost exceeds the value of doing it on a small scale. Basically, it's almost like trying to take a company public is, is what you're, you're having to do to make that work. So you're trying to take a company public to put together a $1 to $2 million project. It's just, it's just not worth it. Um, could this be done, though? Can you create a way to make this happen? The big problem is the initial capital. The, that, that's the big problem. And again, it could be raised with a utility token, um, but you're back to solicitation and you're back to FTC and things like that. Because what you're needing to do is take the income in and then buy the property. And that was the hope that we could say, I didn't even want the money. I wanted basically to know the money was available. So we had X amount of these higher-level investors, Y amount of these lower-level investors that are all committed to the project. Far beyond, if, you know, based on finding something like a four to 500-acre property, I had five times the number of people that I would need. So in other words, if half the people dropped out, I would have still told half of who were remaining, you didn't get in. And that was just testing the idea. That's how fast it went, because it was such a great idea. But it... It, it doesn't work that way. So you almost have to have the capital in reserve in advance. 
And then as you sell off the portions, you can recoup the capital. And in doing it that way, you can structure it from a tax standpoint where there's enough offset that you're not paying 100% tax on everything. But if you try to capitalize the money and then buy the property, there's no way to do it without an IPO, which costs more than the whole project. That's IPO's initial public offering is what you're talking about there. And, you know, no, a, a cryptocurrency doesn't solve it. I'd love to do this someday. I would love to find a piece of land. It has to be within two hours of my house because I, I've learned what happens when I try to oversee a project from some 10, 10 states away. It just goes to shit. It, 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 I don't have someone that I can trust to do it, and therefore I'm the only one that can do it. And if I can't step, step foot on it a couple times a month, I can't, I can't do this. I, I can't. No way. So if I did it, it would have to be within a couple hours of my house. And make it something that a person with a modest amount of money could be part of. That was the real goal. Something like a small recurrent cost, a relatively low buy-in, um, a 99-year lease is completely doable for obtaining a construction loan, but there were more problems. There's more problems. Even in out-in-the-county type, unincorporated land a lot of times, in, in this state anyway, uh, you, all of a sudden now you're putting in a subdivision, and the one piece of land we found that might have worked for this, and we had worked out another way to do it and to balance the funding and to do all of that. And then it was like, it was going to cost us about $2 million to put the roads in they were going to require. It just, none of it really makes sense. It's very difficult to do, and I would love someone to take on figuring out how to do it. I, I really would, but... Doing it at the scale I wanted to do, which is bigger than most that exist, but smaller than the type of thing that you you know you get major commercial development with, it just seemed almost impossible uh, for me to do with the limited bandwidth that I have and running my own business. Like I, I just don't have the ability to do that as a, as a side thing, and I've I've learned from that. But if somebody ever really thinks they get their arms around it, I'd love to talk to you about it. Uh, next up, this is weird because it doesn't explain exactly what's going on here. Um, but it does make a good point. It's thought I would be something I should at least mention from you. Um, Ken, known as Bad Wolf on, Z Bad Wolf on Zello, said, I just wanted to share my experience and show the downsides of being a tactical with you and your audience. The if the police ever look at you for anything, or if they ever execute a search warrant on your house, it's going to look bad. For the tactical prepper, for example, in my house, I had guns, knives, reloading equipment, so I had a fair amount of gunpowder, lockpicks, and a few training boards, uh, books on survival, a bug-out bag, books on wilderness survival, and of course, old military books and books on guerrilla warfare. This looks bad in front of a jury, really bad. Not, this is a quote, not only did he have large amounts of guns, ammo, and knives, but he had pick he, he can pick locks has books on how to wage war against the government he even has everything he needs to make bombs and a bag already packed to leave town end quote this lesson came too late for me maybe you can help out one of your listeners thanks for all you do Ken um, I've always found this to be something that does have to be a balanced thing we can't live our lives in fear but we probably don't want to look over the top either in case we... Because anybody can have this happen to them. The thing is, I don't know what Ken is charged with, if anything. I don't know exactly how this happened. I don't understand the context. Because if you're being looked at because they think you are going to rob a bank, this all seems relevant. 
if they were looking at you because they thought you were growing pot, they didn't find anything except this stuff, this seems like there is no crime. So, I mean, the right attorney in this situation is critical. There's a lot of things I think that can be done to mitigate this, though. Um, the, the concept of reloading, I think it's really important that you can show that that equipment exists for the purpose of reloading ammunition, which is a hobby that millions of people partake in. That it's not a way to build bombs and look like you're doing something else. Um, again, we're back to a good defense attorney here because, well, he could use that, uh, he could use that gunpowder to make a bomb. I can use a 50-pound bag of friggin' fertilizer to make a hell of a lot bigger of a bomb for a lot less money. Did you find bomb-making materials? We found a gun, but no, did you find bomb-making materials? I mean, you know, a defense attorney can do a lot in this situation. But I think looking over the top, and I think that it's it's less the totality and more like the individual thing. I've said this from the very beginning. If you have your 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 def, your home defense shotgun tacked out to the max, it doesn't look as good if you ever have to use it as if you just have a basic shotgun, which we we all know it basically functions the same way. It, it really does. So I, there's got to be a balance with this. And I would say, you know, I think there is a place where maybe it doesn't make a lot of sense to be running around with the anarchist cookbook and stuff like that. I mean, I don't keep things like that. Um, and to think about how you protect your security of your search history and stuff like that. I don't want to go any deeper than that into it today. But, um, Ken, if you could be a little more specific. I don't know how much you want to share, but I, I really don't understand the the direct correlation between what they found and what you're accused of doing, whether you did it or not. I, I don't really know. Uh, next up, uh, Tactical Redneck says, you mentioned you're planning a deep water hydro system. Could you describe what you're thinking about doing? I've been asked to set something up similar to what it sounds like you're planning. I have a plan that I think will work, but I think I would trust what you think will work more than the cheap. I built this in my mom's basement stuff I keep finding online. Um, okay, so... I, what I'm talking about doing with a deep water system, I'm thinking about doing outside. And I don't even know if that's really the right terminology for it. What I'm talking about is, one, I will do something that will be more of like a lettuce and greens and stuff like that in the greenhouse. I don't know if I'm going to do Kratky. I'm going to know if I'm going to do recirculating Kratky. I don't know if I'm going to do NFT, which is, uh, you know, nutrient film. Uh, which is where you're going with like troughs or pipes and you're just running fluid across the bottom of them in a low rate of flow or whatever. I'm not sure what I'm going to do there yet. I think what you're talking about is I have, I have first of all, said like Stewie Griffin, even though I can't do the voice, victory is mine. I have finally redone the last of the wicking beds out of the, the, the racks down onto the ground in my aviary and I have moved what was in three sections of the three-section aviary into two. I have a completely open 120 square feet section of the aviary. And I am probably going to do tomatoes in there. And I think this is what you were talking about, dude. Um, what everybody seems to do with tomatoes is like the Dutch bucket design. So you got your five-gallon bucket, you got it full of leka, you run a drip emitter, and then a certain you know pressure of the pump, and then that keeps a flow of water slowly that matriculates down through the bucket and then returns to a, a, a reservoir. And that's how most people seem to be doing tomatoes. Not that long ago, I did an episode where we talked with a guy uh, that does greenhouses in hydro, and he is doing aqua, um, I'm sorry, hydroponic cannabis in his greenhouse in Tennessee. I can't remember the name of that episode, but I'll try to find it for you. And 
so I started talking to them, and it turned out that they were doing cannabis in deep water. If you can do cannabis a certain way, you can do tomatoes. Tomatoes would actually be easier, in my opinion. And what he pointed out was, number one, I don't have any of the expense of the media. Two, there's no real point of failure. In a deep water system, you simply have an overflow point. And you can always build a second overflow point a little higher up for redundancy. Like, there's literally very, like, the only point of failure in that system is really the pump could die. And then you still have quite a bit of time in a system like that before you have to replace the pump, before things start to really die. You certainly have a day or two to work with. Because basically, all of a sudden, now you're doing cracky. Right? Especially if you keep your water level. Just, you know, where there's some roots above the water level for oxygen, you're going to be fine for a week or two in a long-term power outage. All of this makes sense to me. So what I'm thinking about doing for tomatoes, and I don't have the exact diagram or anything, but here's the basics, is I think they're called commander or whatever, but they're the black and yellow rugged totes. You can get at Home Depot, Lowe's, etc., And they make a five-gallon bucket version. So it's a little taller and a little more narrow and therefore deeper than your five-gallon square cube ones, your, your rectangular-shaped ones. It's really more of a square. They call it a bucket, but it's, it's rounded corners, but it's a square. They're black, yellow top. That means they don't let light in. They are definitely more rugged than a five-gallon bucket, And when you factor in a lid, they cost like a dollar more a piece. So they cost less money, or they cost about the same money, and they're a much better product. So what I'm thinking about doing is setting up a system where the tomatoes are growing in those. And then they're, they're, they're trained on a wire, hard pruned, like you do tomatoes in, in greenhouses and what have you, up to the roof of my aviary. And there's just a simple return, and all we're doing is delivering to however many buckets there are returning to a sump. And then we're running a standard whatever nutrient I come up with in that. There's some other things I'm looking at doing that I really can't explain now because I'm really not sure what I'm going to do. When I gut my greenhouse, my instinct is that my greenhouse is going to be kind of my coup de grace on hydro because it's really not going to be hydro. It's going to be organic hydro, which is really going to be aquaponics without fish which is organic hydro. And I kind of know exactly how to do it from a methodology, but I don't know exactly from a layout and functionality standpoint how I'm going to do it. But the, the real trick to this is to, if you want to do an organic hydro, what you're going to do is you're going to include media that acts not in the way that typical hydro media acts. You're going to use media that acts the way media in an aquarium filter acts. It's going to run a nitrogen cycle, nitrite-nitrate cycle. And then you're going to use some sort of a organic matter that breaks down the way fish poo does. So the way I saw Rob Bob do it for his, his parents from, from YouTube, they wanted a system, but they didn't want to take care of fish. Well, they just put a little bit of compost tea and kelp meal and fish food in the system every week. And it broke down. Well, to me, what we're solving with aquaponics and what gets difficult is the, the secondary and micronutrients. What we're really providing in an aquaponics system is nitrogen. That's the big thing we're providing. Well, if we take a hydro system and we run it 
with mostly an organic nutrient, like kelp meal, like um, things like, what am I looking for here, uh, compost tea, to make sure that there's enough of a balance in there. And if we need to add some you know, iron and zinc or calcium and magnesium, we can. And we don't have to worry about killing fish when we do this now. If we put an ebb and flow bed in that system, and we fill that ebb and flow bed with worms, we don't even have to grow much in that, and it doesn't have to be a very big one relative to the size of the system. There's a lot of surface area in there. So if we take something like you know, a 10-gallon tub or a 20-gallon tub that's ebb and flow, and it's full of leka or lava rock or whatever, and we only bring it up about three-quarters of the way, the water level at the top of that water level, when it flushes out, there's a lot of kind of dry, moist medium in there. There's a lot of moving around ability for worms. Well, we can throw some organic fertilizer. We can throw some sweet feed. We can throw some fish food, whatever we want, on top of that bed. And those worms will come up, especially at night, and eat that stuff. And then we're dropping worm tea and worm castings right into our system that's being taken back with ebb and flow. And we're kind of doing worm ponics. But because the worms are living in a media, as long as we're not going to use something like copper in the system that's going to kill invertebrates, those worms have a lot more tolerance to things like, hey, I just dumped iron in because the iron level is so low and my plants are iron deficient. Or zinc or whatever. So we're able to have the flexibility of a hydroponic system, but the organic nature of an aquaponic system. And I think I've looked at a lot of people trying to do a full-on organic hydroponics, and it seems like this is the missing piece. And the nice thing is, the way that I'll build this, however I end up assigning it in my greenhouse, if it doesn't work, it'll be real easy to just flip it to full aquaponics like I used to have it with a much better layout, or to flip it to just straight hydroponics and go, that didn't work. Because you're just talking about one additional thing into the system, which, by the way, should work just fine even with, you know, icky synthetic nutrient. Um, this idea that if we use any synthetic nutrient, all our worms are going to die is, is asinine. Uh, my grandfather did a lot right, and he did a lot of things that, you know, I don't do. My grandfather fertilized his garden with fertilizer. He also used, you know, um, horse manure that was composted and mulch and all those things that we do today. But, you know, he would give a kick of just plain old 10-10-10 granular fertilizer. And there's some downsides of that. But if, you, if you're going to try to tell me that that's going to mean there's going to be no worms or living organisms in the soil, I'm going to tell you that you're just wrong. Because growing up in Pennsylvania, I never bought a can of worms in my life for fishing. I just went out whenever it rained with a flashlight and pulled night crawlers. And the most night crawlers were in those beds that he had me, you know, spreading either 10, 10, 10, or sometimes the, the, the tomatoes. He used miracle Grow, plain old blue miracle Grow, you know, that you mix with water. And I would do that maybe twice a year. I would, you know, fertilize the tomatoes. And, again, I'm not saying it's a good idea. I'm saying it's not the destructive force that people try to make it out to be. There were plenty of worms and critters and everything in that soil. So... That tells me that even if we're still having, if, as we figure this out, moving toward a full organic system, as we're figuring it out, we can begin to incorporate organic components of it over time until we figure out what works. 
So I know that's a roundabout answer, but it's it's the best I can do for you right now, dude. Uh, next, Marty says, talk to us about bamboo. I live in a subdivision community, but have about 15 acres of woods behind my home with a stream running through it, so it will never be developed. It connects to another 500-plus acres. That sounds awesome. Um, it's technically forest buffer preservation full of wildlife. I want to add some green during the winter while walking through the 500 acres. Noticed a huge outcropping of bamboo. The bamboo is as thick as my wrist and maybe half an acre in size. What can I do to harvest some of the awesome bamboo and replant it? Will it self-propagate and grow into a mini bamboo forest? I would love to use bamboo as pioneering staves for my son's scout troop as well. Thanks for all you do for such very knowledge base for our community, Marty. Marty, first of all, let me just say this. As long as you're not going to get in any trouble with the local law enforcement community, you know, uh, HOAs or anything like that, you can go take a machete and harvest bamboo that you want to use for construction and projects and stuff from this place, and you do not have to worry. You will not be doing an evil thing. It will grow back. Once bamboo is established the way you just described it, it's almost impossible for common usage of it to really detrimentally affect it. In fact, the more you cut, the more it will grow, and over time, the more it will probably spread, unless something's impeding its spread. So before you plant this thing on your property, be sure you really need to, because you have now the ability to forage. That means you have something that's existing in the wild, it's doing its thing, and you can treat that as a Zone 4-type crop. It's basically managed forestry on publicly accessible land. So unless the idea that if you go out there and cut some canes or something like that is going to cause a problem, maybe, I'm not saying don't, but maybe don't worry about planting it at all. Okay? When I was a kid in Florida, we had some stands of bamboo exactly like this that was in, it wasn't even public land, but it was publicly accessible. In other words, no one really knew who owned it, and we ran around in it all the time. And we found these big stands of bamboo, and we did all kinds of stuff with bamboo when we were kids. And we cut that stuff down like crazy. We made fishing poles out of it. We made forts out of it. We did all kinds of shit. And all it did was grow back faster, and we could cut it down. So I'm telling you from experience on that. Now, let's talk about growing bamboo on your property. If you want to propagate this, what you're going to want to do is if you look around the outer edges of this clump, it is, it is likely the reason this thing is already a half acre in size is it's expanding. And someday it's probably going to be an acre. Okay? Um, and if you look around the outer edges, you'll probably see little shoots starting to come up that are about as big as your finger. Be careful. Like, depending on how thin your shoes are, they're pretty tough, and you can end up putting your foot, one through your foot if you're not careful. And when you find one, all you got to do is kind of find the rhizome mat that's there. And, and it'll be hard to do, but you dig into it, a machete, a hatchet, something like that to cut loose, and take some of the rhizome with you where those active shoots are, and if you plant that in, in soil that's favorable to bamboo um, and you take care of it and you make sure it gets some nutrient and it stays wet, it will establish itself, it will start growing, and it will take a while when you come off with a new set like that. It's gonna, when you do that to it, it's going to say, I need more rhizomes. If you think about a bamboo that, that's as thick as your wrist and some are 20, 30, 40 foot tall, that has to have quite a bit of support so it doesn't fall over. Now, this is the good news to a degree about bamboo. It doesn't grow deep. It's like a couple inches. It's grass. It's grass that grows really big swords. That's what bamboo is. 
Okay, which is why it's great in a lot of ways because if you have bamboo growing somewhere and you have things like cattle or goats, you can totally hack down that big giant bamboo cane, drag that cane to where your livestock are, and they'll eat all the leaves off of it for you, so you don't have to clean it off yourself. And then you can cut up the cane and use the cane as you see fit. Right, so that's one of the good things about it. But that means it has to establish a lot of rhizome before it can start putting on real heavy growth. Because it has to build out, it, it has an innate intelligence like all living beings do, and it knows if I grow big before I grow wide, I'm going to fall over. And this is one of the things about it. Even though it only grows a couple inches deep, it is incredibly dense mat of rhizome. And it's very hard to remove. If you put it somewhere, make sure you really want it there because it is difficult to get rid of. The next thing is it spreads through runners, and it will spread all through your yard. And it will go under the, it has no respect for fences and boundary lines. It will go under your fence. It will go in your neighbor's yard. It will go everywhere. If the place it's trying to spread to is routinely mowed, it's not that much of an issue. If it's routinely mowed, your shoots are going to come up, whack. And before they get big enough to be hard to mow, whack, whack, whack. And it will kind of maintain itself right where you mow. If you back off at all, It will establish itself, and it will begin to, like the creature from the, the, the blob from the old B-level horror movies, it will begin to grow and grow and grow and expand. And your neighbors who may not be maintaining that area with the lawnmower or something like that may end up hating you. So if you're going to grow bamboo on a small property, the best way to do this is to dig a trench about three foot deep, which I, if I was going to do this, I'd go to Home Depot or Lowe's or something like that and rent a trenching machine. We'll walk behind one and trench down in the ground a couple, you know, two and a half feet. And then you want to put in a double layer of pond liner vertically all the way down to the bottom of that trench and a couple inches above the surface. This will do a pretty good job of containing your bamboo. Because remember, it's only going to try to spread across two to four inches of depth. It will try to climb over. So you, you really, I, like, I don't recommend, like, it just seems natural to, like, grow up right up against a fence. But that makes it very difficult for you to be responsible and cutting a buffer. So I would keep it at least five feet off a fence so that your mower will fit back there. And you keep this from going into your neighbor's yard if any of it escapes over the top. There are professional landscapers. I know you're a man of means, you know, it's a bit based on some conversations we've had. And there are professional landscapers that will do this for you. They know exactly how to do it. And I don't know that it's necessarily a good idea for you to take the bamboo from this location and bring it there. The good news is you know that it's adapted to your climate and your soil type and all that because it's living there. That's the good thing. The bad thing is you probably don't know what kind of bamboo you have. And there's different types of bamboo that have different uses and sizes and temperance and tolerance. And it's actually a fascinating subject. And if you're really serious about growing bamboo – I would do some research and find, you know, what what you are most excited about growing, and I would get that because it is the smallest part of the cost of the install. The pond liner, the trencher, the labor, all of that is more expensive. And if you don't do it, you'll wish you did. I'll just leave it at that. Let's go on to another one. Um, oh, I should say real quick, one of the great things about bamboo that people don't really think about is that it is edible as a shoot. The bamboo shoots are really good eating. And um, you can look up online how to kind of encourage to get it the kind of shooting you, you want done. And I would encourage you, if you want to see if you like to eat bamboo shoots from this particular variety, to go and do that 
and forage it. And I would think really hard about just foraging this resource rather than bringing it on my property, depending on the size of your property, et cetera, or whether or not foraging this resource is going to cause a problem with the local police or the local Karens or whatever. All right, next up, You Don't Know Me, who is also known as John from Missouri, um, says, is there a way to revitalize nonstick skillets? I've got a few nonstick skillets. I don't have any scratches that I can see, but they're starting to stick a lot. Is there any way to fix this? Can I build up a polymer layer like cast iron? Is it worth it? My short answer to that, as far as I know, no. Any kind of a non-stick, industrial non-stick skillet that you get, when it just stops working, it just stops working. And I, I, I wouldn't know if maybe if you have something stuck on there. That, I, I wouldn't be able to tell without looking at it, but my guess would be no. Uh, next, there's a hairline crack and a cast iron skillet I've been using on the inside, uh, but it doesn't reach the outside. Wife decided to wash it right after I got done cooking and before I could stop her, and I think that's what caused it. Is the pan trash or is it fixable? There is a way to weld cast iron. It might be called brazing instead of welding. I don't know that for sure. That's not my world. The reason I know it's possible is I have a deep um, cast iron fry pan, basically, like something that would be your granny would have used to deep fry chicken in. Really, really cool. And the handle was broken off it, and there is some form of a weld that is that has put that handle back on it. Whether that's going to work for a crack in the bowl itself, I'm not sure of. My guess is it's toast. It might work for a while, but it's going to fail. And so if it's a lodge or something like that, you know, I would just accept it, that, that it's gone. If it was some old thing, you might want to check around with some local metal workers or something like that, maybe some old-timers that have some experience. I don't know. I mean, it would seem like something that would have to be done on the outside, not the inside, or you're going to totally distort that inner surface that you're trying to season. It would have to be milled. It just doesn't. It seems to me like this: it's probably fixable, but with the cost of cast iron, including antique cast iron, it probably will cost more than just replacing it. That's my guess. If anybody knows otherwise, let me know. Uh, or let us all know in the comments section today's show. Uh, this is from, let's see, Darren says, I may receive a job offer. I need to know what questions to ask before accepting or rejecting the offer. I may receive a job offer for a smaller company. I had an interview conversation with the CEO, and we have another one scheduled. The interview process will take us about five steps to ensure it's a good fit for all. I've never worked for a small company. The CEO has successfully started another company. That's still going strong today. So I feel I will be stable, but I want reassurance. Is is it reasonable to ask direct questions on this topic? What questions would you ask? Here's my thoughts. Can you add to them? Is the company making a profit? Is the revenue steady or does it fluctuate? Why is this position open, unless it's a new position? Uh, what is the company's growth rate? The company is a telecom lifecycle management with 20 or so employees. This would not be an entry-level position. I'm currently employed, but I've been with my company for over 20 years, and I've hit a ceiling. Time to move on and up. Darren, Darren. first of all, I think you're, you're thinking in exactly the right way. And while there needs to be a little bit of tact and be you know, a little bit politically correct about the way some of these questions are asked, you don't want to sound accusational. I think it is completely reasonable to ask questions like this. In fact, uh, this would seem to me, if you have 20 years of experience, and I'm trying to bring you into a company like this, and I'm taking this much time and these many interviews and these many steps 
before making you an offer that I'm bringing you in, in not just not an entry level, something fairly a senior level position. It would also seem to me that you are taking a risk by coming to work for me. You're working for a larger company. Maybe you're not moving up anymore, but if you want to stay there another 10 years, you probably have no problem with that, or you could probably go to another larger company. I'm asking you to step out of your comfort zone and come work to me and take a leadership position because I think you can help my company grow instead of just help your company continue. If you didn't ask me if my company was profitable, I would not hire you. I'm not saying that everybody's that way. I'm saying I wouldn't hire you. I'd be like, this guy doesn't even give a shit if we're making money. Right? Um, and I would, I would ask about what is, what is your growth plan? And what role do you see me playing in that for you? How do, how do you plan on growing the company and how am I going to be able to help you do that? The question about why is the position open is completely valid. I have never interviewed for a job in my life of any significance. So if you take me back to when I was like 20 years old and getting a job packing boxes, yeah, I, I didn't ask you, know, why is the position currently open? No, because we fire people all the time because they don't show up for work. I mean, now, But when you're talking about anything of significance, I always want to know why is the position open? Is the position new? If the position's new, what made you move on starting that, you know, bringing somebody into this position now? What resources are you going to, and you got to think about how you format this, when you ask, the timing. Like, so I'm not just saying make this list and pound them out, but I'm like, what resources are going to be available to me in order to help you accomplish your goals for the company? Like, what am I going to have at my disposal? That's important. You know, if, if you're, I, see, I don't know what your position is. If it's in management, well, how many people am I managing? What experience, what is my, what is the existing team that I'm going to be managing like? How are they going to feel about you bringing someone in like myself from outside the fold? You know, I have, and I would be very clear, and I have no problem with stepping into that leadership role and taking over that position, and I have no no doubt that I'll be able to do a good job doing that for you and, and earn their respect. But knowing how they're going to feel coming in would be beneficial in that. That that is a very very important question. If you're gonna, if I'm gonna have, if you're, gonna, if you're hiring me to, to be in marketing for you, I have a totally different type of mindset that I'm asking about. Great. So what is your marketing budget for this year? Right now, what do you have planned in your marketing? Who's making those decisions today? Because if you're gonna hire me as your marketing guy and give me no budget, I, I, I there's literally not much I can do. I don't need a huge, I need a budget. And if we don't know yet, okay, are, are we familiar with the swag? And I don't know if I would say it that way. I probably would. You probably shouldn't. Are we familiar with the term of swag? Statistical wild. I'd like, do you, what, what is your baseline budget that I'm going to be operating? There has to be something. And you might get a, a very reasonable response. We're going to ask you to put that together. Yeah, okay, fine. I still need to know, like, bottom end. You want me to market And you tell me my marketing budget is, is my marketing budget 50 bucks? Oh, well, no. Okay. Well, then let's, you know, because I know the market space. I, I know the trade shows that we might need to get involved with. I'm going to put together a very different proposal with a half a million dollar budget, a quarter million dollar budget, or a two million dollar budget, or a hundred thousand dollar budget, or a fifty thousand dollar budget. And if you're going to hire me as a marketer, and pay me a salary of $150,000 a year and give me a $10,000 marketing budget, we're not even talking. Right? I mean, so you you got to see what you didn't give me is what your position is, what you're doing. So you have to think about what are you going to, when you go to work for a company this size, 
You're going there for a growth opportunity, and you can only grow if the company grows. One of the reasons we stagnate in larger companies is that there's a hierarchy, and since the company's not really growing anymore, even if the, the revenue's growing, the company's not really growing. There's not that much opportunity. Somebody has to die or quit to move up. And when somebody does, once you hit a certain level, if somebody dies or quits, there's 20 people stabbing each other in the back for that one spot that's left. Where earlier in your career, you know, it's, it's, if you're good, you're going to move up. So we're moving into that company. We're making this lateral move or lateral and up move for more growth. So for me to grow, the company has to grow. So I have to know what my, for me to figure out any questions beyond what you have, the way to think about this, what will your role be in that company's growth? And then you have to ask yourself, what tools will you need to accomplish that growth? And then your questions need to be directed toward that. And they need to sound very much of a concern for the company rather than yourself. So I don't want to know what my marketing budget is as a marketer because I like to spend money. I want to know what the marketing budget for a company is as the marketing director because I need to market the company and grow the company. And I can grow the company with a small budget, a medium budget, or a large budget. I can do any one of those things. But the decisions I'm going to make are going to have a lot to do with the size of the budget. The smaller the budget, the more tactical that I have to be about turning things down. The larger the budget the more careful I have to be with it because the more there is to lose. right? So there's different ways that I'm going to approach that. So if I am coming in as an engineering level person and I'm going to be managing a team, what software are we using? I mean, I don't know. That's not my world. So you have to think about what is your role in growing the company. And then your questions need to be addressed toward the company having that growth potential and what, what side of that you fit into. I hope that makes sense, man. Uh, next one comes from Noah. Noah from Michigan. Good morning. Point. Have backup emergency phone numbers stored somewhere easily accessible. Last night, 911 services in Michigan had technical failures and 911 was unavailable. My friend works for 911 and reminded me that all the local departments still had phones up. I hope to never need 911, but if I do, I definitely want to back up if 911 doesn't work. There's not a lot of time to Google those numbers during a heart attack or a house fire. Everybody take 10 minutes quick and go throw the local sheriff, state police numbers in your phone so you can still get hurt during an emergency. Even if you get a busy signal from 911, two is one and one is none. Thanks for helping us stay ready, Jack Noah. There's a couple things to unpack with this. Number one, if the 911 service is down because of some sort of an outage, some sort of technical problem or something like that, calling your local department will probably be beneficial. It will probably help. Somebody will probably try to help you. They want to help. To be, I mean, you know, we, we get hard sometimes on law enforcement especially because of some of the things they do that they shouldn't do. Um, but in general, most of the time, the police, if they can, want to help. And so you know, your fire departments, et cetera, they all want to help. That's why 911 exists, so that you could be connected to the people that want to help you, and they respond. And because this is something that we can't just have everybody calling for everything, we have a 911 emergency service that, that takes care of aggregating this. So if that goes down because somebody took a USB drive they found in the parking lot, plugged it in, and a virus infects the system, this is something that has actually happened, by the way. Just saying. They say in, secure, in network security there is no patch for stupid. Right. So if something like that happens and you call your local sheriff's department and your sheriff is the person that covers your area, they are probably aware of the outage 
and they have something in place. So yes, if 911 is busy because so much is happening and some kind of crisis, you can try, but they may tell you to call 911. They may. It depends. It may not work. Now what that means is we really need to think about our preparedness because sometimes 911 isn't happening. So what are we going to do if grandpa's on the floor with a heart attack and 911's not responding? And the local sheriff's department either can't respond, won't respond, whatever. How are we going to deal with that? And I don't have an answer for you right now because there's 20 other things that could be in that place of grandpa having a heart attack. Sometimes it's you throw the person in the car and rush to the hospital. It depends on the situation. What's the weather like? What's going on? Why is this situation going on? This is a good idea, though. And if you go listen to the episode I did like 10 years, 11, 12 years ago, uh, originally on documentation, it's something I said has to be in your documentation. All the non-emergency first responder contacts. You need that. In your phone, good idea, too. You should have these numbers. You need them not just for, for not... For an emergency when you can't get 911, but if you do need to reach out to, let's say, your local sheriff's department about something that's not an emergency, you're not asking for an officer response. I will tell you this in my experience with dealing with first responders. A lot of times things that you don't see as an emergency, they're still going to tell you to call 911. If you want a response to this, call 911. You will get that from a, you know, a desk jockey at the, at the precinct. It'll happen. You know. there's, a, there's an abandoned vehicle on the side of the road. Been there for a day. Looks kind of funky to me. I had This is an actual conversation I had. Um, there was a vehicle. It was in a ditch. And I'm not a, you know, I'm not a, a, a Ken. Ken to the Karen, right? That, that wants to cause people problems. But it just where it was, it just, you know, did somebody walk off into the woods and kill themselves? Or something? I, I don't know. So I, I called. And it was in within the jurisdiction of our local sheriff's department. And I called, I said, you know, this is not an emergency or whatever, but here's the vehicle, here's the plate number, it's been there since yesterday. It just, it might be something y'all want to be aware of. And she said, well, you know, we're through there all the time, we'll see it, we'll decide, or if you really want to make sure that we respond to it, call 911. I said, well, I don't want to, she said, that's, that's what I'm telling you. So... Just know that, too. It's important. Uh, next up, this comes from Willie, and Willie says, Hey, Jack, I purchased a sous-vide machine, and I've used it four times already. I've got to say thank you. I wonder why this isn't in every freaking household. I know your memory's razor sharp, but if you don't remember me, I'm a single dad with an amazing teenage girl. We both listen to you and watch your YouTube channel. I have since your very first episode. My daughter caught uh, interest around episode 450 or so. Anyhow, we just finished off a beef fajita creation with low-carb tortillas that I didn't think would have been nearly so freaking awesome without the Anova. Uh, next, we're making your chips with the same tortillas. I've managed to lose almost 40 pounds on keto and got another 40 to go, but I'm getting there. Thanks, Willie. Well, number one, Willie, good on you for losing weight. A uh, little shout-out to one of our expert council members, Patrick Warman. Patrick has lost almost as much weight as I have. Keto. And he was texting me and show, showing me his blood pressure numbers and all this morning and very, very excited about his progress. And he still, I still got some, some work to do and still some stuff to go. Uh, but I never really saw Patrick as being that overweight. And uh, this stuff works. Let's go back to the sous vide thing. Um, can I say that everybody should own a sous vide uh, circulator? No. I can't say everybody should. Because, you know, people make their own decisions and what have you. 
what I will say is this. Whatever keeps you from trying sous vide, whatever, because there are people that have this, I don't know, misgivings about it. It can't possibly be as good as people say. It's like boiling food, whatever. It's too much. It's too fidgety. It's it's too much work. It's 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 too you know foofy flu or whatever. Uh, if you get one and you use it, you're not going to feel that way about it. I'm going to tell you right now, it is less work. Period. Than any other way to cook meat, there is no easier easy button. And like tonight, I'm making a tri tip. In fact, when I get done recording today, before I get the show up, I'm gonna go take that tri tip. I'm gonna season it. I'm gonna grab the uh, vac sealer down. I'm gonna vac seal that tri tip. I'm gonna throw it in. I'm gonna hit a button. I'm gonna set a temperature. I'm gonna walk away. And when my grandkids go back to camp, camp dad and mom tonight. And it's time to cook dinner. All I'm going to worry about is our vegetables and our salad. I'm not going to worry about it. It's going to be fine. And all I'm going to do is take it out, sear it, and we're going to eat it. And it's going to be perfectly cooked. It's going to be tender as the day is long. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to taste perfect. I already know this. I don't have to worry about it. I am not going to wait for the kids to leave and then throw that thing on the grill and spend an hour and a half trying to get it perfect. Right? I'm not going to have to cut it into pieces so that I can cook it like a steak instead of cooking it like a tri-tip whole the way it deserves to be cooked. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm not going to put it in the oven and sit there and test it with a, you know, a, a, a thermometer. I'm just going to set that sucker to 135 degrees and walk away, and it's going to be perfect. And since my wife doesn't like it all red like that, I'm going to cut her piece off tonight, and I'm going to sear it red side down for her, on both sides, and that's going to cook it through enough that she'll be happy. And she'll get the same beautiful tenderness with the red cooked out of it because mentally she doesn't like it that way. And, and I'm going to get that. And that's just one example of what this thing does for me. I'll tell you one of the, one of the ways I've used my sous vide that I think is just so underrated and so fantastic. The other night... My, well, not the other night. It was like the middle of the day. But it was really kind of too late in the day. My wife decides she wants chicken legs on the grill for dinner. And it's like 2.30 in the afternoon. Well, if you have a, and I would like, we get these huge packs of chicken legs and they're like frozen in blocks. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a process to defrost that. And I'm like, just get them out. She's like, but it won't be till tomorrow. Just get them out. So I took three big blocks of these chicken legs. So the sous vide down to like, 50 degrees. So it's not hot. It's not going to start to cook them. Throw them in the sous vide with the circulator going. Set the timer for 25 minutes. Defrosted. Because moving water defrosts quickly. So just the fact you can... And then it, that was the time I wasn't even going to cook with it. I didn't vacuum them. They come cryovac. I just threw the whole package in there. But the water touched the plastic in the outside. I'm not... Nothing touched the inside. That's the whole point. I mean, I'm not suggesting you do this, but literally you could sous vide something in pee, like piss, and it wouldn't ever touch the food anyway. Don't do that. That's disgusting. That's nasty. I'm just kind of making a point for you. You're not boiling or steaming the food because the food never touches the liquid. Um, I will put a link to my favorite sous vide cooker. Um, there's two that are highly recommended. One's the Jewel and one's the Anova. I bought a Jewel. It lasted about a year. It crapped out. I bought it in a Nova. I have no problems with it. So one failure does not equal 
a device being bad, but if I have to recommend between the two, I recommend the Innova. And the uh, the lower tech version of the Innova is really, really affordable. You really should have one in every home, I think. I can't say you should, but you should consider it. How about that? Uh, Michael um, was asking me a question on the blog when I was talking about hydroponics and nutrient density. And one of the things I said is, I am unable to locate a single scientific study that has looked at food grown in the soil and food grown with hydroponics that shows that hydroponic food as as much claimed is nutrient deficient. It's nutrient deficient compared to, I mean, obviously the care a grower takes in growing food and how it's done is going to have an effect on nutrient density. So if you take like the most beautifully, you know, biodynamic permaculture, blessed by virgins, you know, food grown in the soil of the depths of, you know, nirvana, Obviously, it might be more nutrient-dense than something grown in a greenhouse in California with conventional hydroponics that spent three weeks getting across the state or across the country to your supermarket. That's, that's totally possible. But if you take apples to apples and you compare, soil does not equal greater nutrient density. I'm not even saying it doesn't. I'm saying I can't point to a single scientific study that says it is. I can't find conclusive proof. I found a little bit of limited research. And, for instance, in one, they tested raspberries and strawberries. And with the strawberries, there was a slight advantage to the soil grown. And with the raspberries, there was a slight advantage to the hydroponics. What does that mean? It means that both were good. That's what it meant. It meant both had a reasonable nutrient profile. But here's what Michael asked me about that. Is there a way to accurately scientifically test for nutrient density so we can compare hydroponic grown veggies to conventionally or organic soil grown veggies? We hear all the time, grow your own nutrient dense food advice for us, but how do we know that the food we grow at home or whatever method we use is much better for us than the stuff we can buy in the grocery store? Please don't misunderstand. I'm currently setting up a hydro system to grow greens, but I want to know that food is better for me so I can tell people that and might be able to make a concrete argument as to why they should do it too. Okay, so let's let's kind of try to unpack this. My understanding is there is no readily available easy way to definitively check the nutrient profile of any given piece of food in your home inexpensively. This requires significant um, testing done in a laboratory, and it is somewhat expensive. It's not necessarily extremely expensive, but to do a large number of tests over a larger profile of food to do a study would be significantly expensive. Okay? What people always say is, get a bricks meter, get a brick, a refractometer and check the bricks. Yeah and no at the same time. Here's why. What bricks checks for is how much sugar is in the plant. This doesn't necessarily translate to more nutrient density. If we're looking at strawberries, well, there's only a little bit of sugar in strawberries anyway. So a higher bricks reading is going to be a better tasting strawberry. So it's going to be sweeter. You know, it absolutely will taste a little sweeter. But does that mean it has more calcium in it? There's no real direct correlation. Some plants may have some correlation between higher bricks and higher micro and macronutrients, but not necessarily. Do you, do, you, do you just you kind of follow that? I mean, some plants just don't have much to hardly any sugar to begin with. So if we check the bricks reading of spinach, it's going to be relatively low. Spinach just doesn't have a lot of sugar. And a spinach leaf having a little bit more doesn't necessarily mean it has more magnesium in it. 
It may overall be generally acceptable is possibly maybe a general statement that the plant's a little more healthy. Right? But this is the reality, and this is where people need to understand this. Unless there is some impediment to a plant taking up the nutrients that it wants, molecules are molecules. There's problems I have with the way NPK fertilizer is derived from an environmental standpoint, and there are a certain amount of salts in them, and if overused can be a problem in soil profiles and things like that. All right, I'll admit that. But in the end, the molecule that is nitrogen is nitrogen is nitrogen is nitrogen. Whether it comes from bat shit, chicken shit, or from a rock that we dissolved with acid, it's the same molecule. And if that molecule is available, no matter what it is, selenium, I don't care, is available to the plant in a form the plant can take up, and the plant wants it, the plant will take it up. And if it is something the plant doesn't want and doesn't need and doesn't use, with a few exceptions, because there are plants that are really good for remediation, etc., that will take up you know, heavy metals and things like that for doing soil remediation. In most instances, plants will not take up most of these bad things. They don't want them. They're not useful to them. They don't want to use their energy in order to take them up. And it's amazing to me people think that a plant will, for instance, take up cadmium but won't take up selenium when the cadmium doesn't help it and the selenium does. That plant might drink cadmium. It might have to. If the pH is down around 4 to like 3.8 and lower, but then you got all you get an acid problem. Right? So a plant's not going to take it up, but if it if it's a plant that usually has selenium and selenium's there and available, it will take it. The 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 whole thing with nutrient density has been largely misunderstood. One of the biggest reasons that the food that we get in our stores is deficient in nutrient isn't because the plant never took the nutrient up. A lot of the, even the worst of the worst, commercially fertilized produce, if the plant needs these secondary and micronutrients, the fertilizers that they use on them have them. Sometimes the plant can't take them up. Don't misunderstand me. But in most instances, the plant can. So you pick the plant that has its tiny trace amount of selenium, but you don't need that much. And you put it in a package. And it goes on a truck. And it goes from California to Dallas, to a distribution center. And it goes from there to Lake Worth, where I shop. And then I go buy it two weeks later. And it still looks pretty decent, because we've gotten good at this. The nutrient deficiency is as much or more of a function of that time lag as it is the initial nutrient deficiency that the, the produce had in the first place. This is why some of the most healthy produce for you to eat is flash frozen. It's cut, it's frozen. The nutrients are locked in there once it's frozen. It can't shed them. So assuming it was a good nutrient-dense product when it was frozen, it's probably just as nutrient-dense when you cook it. But if it ships across country, the nutrients can be lost over time. Plants naturally lose their nutrients. That's one of the reasons they don't look so happy. That's another thing. If you have a nutrient-deficient plant, it is going to be a target of pests. If you are growing plants that generally are able to ward off the most common pests, you know that plant is nutrient-dense. The next is flavor. The next is flavor. And I, it's amazing to me that I've had people make the case that the reason they know hydroponics is so bad. One person, they're talking about, there's, there's a GIF, you know, a little GIF, like a meme that's really like a little movie um, that I, I really like. 
and it's Benjamin Sisko from Deep Space Nine, Star Trek, and he's saying, that's very moving, except for one small problem. It never happened. And that's how I felt about this guy. He said he left... He left the Netherlands because of how bad their tomatoes are. He moved to a new country because tomatoes. Just, like, you talk about locked up mentally bullshit, right? Well, people will say, well, I, I had a hydroponic tomato. It tastes like shit. Well, what hydroponic tomato? If you're, if you're buying from a giant commercial greenhouse that's shipping tomatoes across the world, like they do in the, in the Netherlands, the biggest exporter of food other than the United States, they're going to use a variety of tomato that is designed more for the purpose of being able to be shipped than flavor. Because that's their priority. If you're growing hydroponically locally and you're selling locally, you're going to sell on flavor because you can deliver fresh. So if you have the right variety, and when we're comparing taste, we don't take a brandy wine tomato grown in deep, dark soil and compare it to a celebrity hybrid tomato grown in hydroponics and say, see, this one tastes differently. We grow the same tomato in those two systems. When you have nutrient-dense food, the flavor will tell you that it's nutrient-dense. You'll know. Now, will you know exactly, and can you conclusively say this is as good as... No, no, no. But if you grow fresh, flavorful food that looks healthy, it's going to be, in general, as nutrient-dense as it needs to be for your, for your use. And the beauty with growing your own is as much that you get the nutrient density from being able to go... This morning... I had a leftover chaffle from, from yesterday. Yesterday, I made Dorothy and I chaffles, which is basically a paleo, keto, waffle-type thing made with egg and cheese and some other stuff. So I, I, I made some yesterday. I had an extra one. So this morning, and they're never to me, they're never as good second day, but they're okay. So I threw it in the waffle iron to heat it up because me, that's the best way to reheat them. And while it was heating up in the waffle iron, getting a little bit of toast to it, I went outside And I went to one of my, my container gardens, and I pulled off a couple leaves of arugula. And then I pulled off a few leaves of Swiss chard and a few garlic chives. And then I went into my indoor vertical farm in the garage and took a couple different lettuce leaves. I brought that in, and I rolled it up kind of like a cigar, and I did a chiffonade, which is like when you cut ribbons, like a real fine ribbon cut, and I mixed that all up, all those different colors, all those different flavors and textures, And then right about that time, I opened up the, the waffle iron, slathered that chaffle with some cream cheese, gave it a sprinkle of the everything bagel seasoning, and then put that, that chiffonade of those different vegetable greens on top of it. The total time between when I pulled those greens and cut them with my fingernail off of the stalk and put them into my mouth was about two minutes. How does anything compete with that for freshness. When we look at nutrient density, we have to be looking at the freshness component as much as anything else. And one of the reasons I think hydro can help with that is because it lets us grow things in times and places where otherwise we could not and we would be forced to import. It doesn't do everything well, but it does some things very, very good. Uh, next, Josh says, Where does cannabis and hemp fit into modern permaculture moving forward with hemp legalized and cannabis surely to follow? Will this be a game changer? Cheers, Josh. On some levels, yes, but I think that the pro-cannabis element of society has always overemphasized what hemp can do because they wanted it to be true. Can we make plastic from hemp? Yes. Is hemp-derived plastic economically um, competitive 
with petroleum-derived plastic? And in general, no, it's not. So we have, it hasn't been hard to get hemp. It's just been hard to get hemp from a U.S. grower. Canada has been growing the shit out of hemp for the last 50 years, and they've loved the fact that we're stupid and don't because they didn't have to compete with us. So it's not like we weren't able to make all these wonderful things we can make from hemp because there was no hemp. I mean, you could buy hemp seeds. Long before the U.S. started to legalize the hemp market, you could buy hemp seeds. As long as they were not alive, you could buy them as a food and eat them. And I do. I think hemp is a great food product. It's a great source of protein. Um, I'm actually playing with the idea of using hemp hearts, which you can get on Amazon, and trying to make, it won't be exactly the same, but almost a boudin. Because boudin, of course, is a, uses liver and rice. It's a Cajun sausage. And it's, it's, it is one of God's true great creations through the hands of man. It really is. It is just... Ugh! And it is totally out of bounds, off limits if you're on keto. And I'm thinking, I can, I can do this, right? So hemp's been available. Now, there is a lot of wonderful things that we can do with hemp. We can make biofuels with hemp. We can make plastics. We can make lots. I, I think that there is going to eventually be a reality that we'll be using hemp to grow media for 3D printers. And I think that long-term, there is a game-changer with hemp. Is it a permaculture game-changer? See, permaculture has to get big enough on a commercial level to impact the commercial market before that can happen. And I just don't think we're anywhere near there yet. We're starting to see more and more conventional farmers look more and more to regenerative agriculture. And I have to say this. If you wanted the perfect alley crop for regenerative, savanna, mimic, ecosystem, agriculture, it is hemp. It is an amazing alley crop. So alley cropping, for those that aren't familiar with it, is when we do what we call regenerative agriculture in the classic sense, Mark Shepard style, we're basically putting in rows of trees, and then we have pasture in between the trees. And once we've done that, it's a lot like putting in a swale-based system with a food forest. That, that inner swell area between whether those trees are on swell lines or not doesn't matter. In between those lines of trees, we can graze it, we can cut it, we can crop it, or we can fill it. There's really not else, anything else we can do. So if we're not grazing it, we have to cut hay if we're going to keep it in pasture. We can grow crops in there of some sort. We call that alley cropping because it's like alleyways between the trees. You know, or, or we can fill it. We can turn it into full-on farm forestry. It, it has to be one of those things. It can't stay static. Um, there has to be some mechanical or biological means of control. So one thing we do in a lot of these systems is we put in what's called alley crops. And one way that that can be done is it can be used as a bridge in the conversion of a system. When Mark Shepard put in New Forest Farms, they grew the shit out of things like zucchini and asparagus in alley crops. Why? Because I could produce a crop yield now, you know, zucchini 60 days and I'm starting to harvest, and I can sell it now, and I can make money now until I get enough revenue off my perennials to transition, and I can start grazing, etc., and I'm only going to do so much of it in an alley crop, so I graze everywhere except where my crops are, and then next year, I put my alley crops over here, and I graze where I cropped last year. 
and it's another form of crop rotation and grazing rotation, etc. And then the animals are fertilizing for the next time I come back and alley crop. Hemp is beautiful for this because we can go in and rip a furrow, as many furrows of hemp as we want, and we can plant the hemp right in with pasture. We don't have to, it's easy for no-till. It grows so fast and so tall, it's quickly going to get above the rest of the pasture. And then all we have to do, even if we want to graze on both sides, if we have an, let's say we have trees, trees, hemp, and we're not going hemp tree to tree. We've got maybe a line of hemp, and we've got a buffer of pasture on both sides of the hemp before we go back to trees. Well, all we got to do is put in just one electro line along both sides of the hemp so our cattle or whatever don't come in there and eat the hemp, because they will. Um, and now we can graze on both. We can still graze that strip. I think it's it, it's an amazing crop for doing that with, and it will probably grow like effing crazy in a system like that. And there's a lot of things we can do with it, but where we really have to get to make these things really work is where we're headed naturally. We don't need the government to force this. If we can have energy systems that don't require us to drill holes deep in the ground, we'll do it. We'll do it. These companies that do this, they do it because they make money doing it. They don't do it because they want to make a giant hole in the ground. As much as we vilify them, that's not, it's like, you know, Exxon gets around and goes, say, hey, uh, guys, I know we're doing really good making lots of money here, but we have not drilled a deep hole in a long time. And I think it's really important that we drill another deep hole. You mean with oil at the bottom of us? No, 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 no. I, if there's oil down there, that's great. But shit, we need some more holes. That's that's not how that works. And what, some of the companies that are doing the most innovation in solar and wind, etc., are the big evil oil companies because they're not in the oil business or the natural gas business. They're in the energy business. And if they can make money on energy, they're going to make money on energy. And we are heading for a place that I really believe, it's about 10 years out, the cheapest electricity on the planet will be solar in 10 years. If it's 15, I was wrong by five years, big effing deal. As we get there, they're going to drill less holes. Not because all of a sudden they got saved by the permaculture Jesus or something, and they don't want to hurt the planet anymore, because it's going to make more sense to do this thing and make money doing this thing than it is going to be to do this thing over here. As we have less extraction of fossil fuels, when it comes to things like plastics, fertilizers, etc., the more we'll rely on biologics. Because the, one of the reasons this stuff is so economical is that it at least on not a direct, but on some level, a byproduct of fossil fuel extraction. A lot of the stuff that we do with plastics, a lot of stuff we do with fertilizers. So I think you'll see a transition toward more and more biologics, and hemp plays a big role in that, if that makes sense. Anyway, with that, we've wrapped up another episode. Hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Survival Podcast. Try to, you know, as we come back on a Monday, I always try to make the Monday ones really varied for you, kind of easy with the format of feedback. Remember, if you want to send feedback for a show like this, jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com is the email address, probably the most public email address on planet Earth for a public figure. I do not hide who I am or where I am. You can always reach me, and I don't have a screener. And if you put TSPC in the subject line, I will look at your email. I may not read it all if it's too long, but I will look at it. So be brief, bottom line up front, and then give me details, and I will try to do my best for you in getting you on the air and re responding to you otherwise. 
Also, if you like the show and the work that we do, consider supporting us. Your online shopping at tspaz.com is how you do that, or one of the ways that you do that. T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Find all the items I've ever reviewed on Amazon, all the ones I'll continue to review. I got some really cool stuff coming from you in the next couple weeks. I am recycling one today, but like I said, I got some new cool stuff coming. And uh, if you shop through T-SPAS, no matter what you eventually buy, whether it's something I recommend or not, you will help support the show and the work we do. Today's uh, item of the day is by one of my favorite authors, Peter Hathaway Capstick. I love Peter Capstick. And he, he was a big writer for like sports afield and things like that in the 70s. Um, left us way too young. He was uh, in his uh, 54 years old, I think is how old he was. Uh, when he passed away, 56 years old, when he died of heart complications, if I remember right. Um, he wrote a lot of really great books about Africa, kind of picking up and taking the baton from Robert Rourke, who also seemed to die too young. Uh, Capstick died of, they said, heart complications. I think a lot of these guys, these, these professional hunter types, end up blowing their liver up for some reason, is what it really seems like to me with alcohol. Anyway, um, this book is called Death in a Lonely Land. Out of all of Capstick's books, it's probably my favorite. I grew up reading his books, Robert Rourke's books, uh, Teddy Roosevelt's books, Ernest Hemingway's books. Those were the things I read as a young kid uh, that really shaped a lot of who I am. I will say this book has all these different stories. It's kind of a collection of short stories, hair-raising stories. But it's got one in it that's not really hair-raising at all. It's about making biltong. And all of you that have made biltong over the years, if it wasn't for this book... I would have probably never learned to make biltong, and you would have never heard about it, at least not from me. So you might want to check it out if for no reason other than that. Anyway, Death in a Lonely Land by Peter Hathaway Capstick. I will warn you one thing about reading Capstick's work. It's good. It's really good to the point where if you buy one of his books, you'll probably end up with a full collection. There, I, I have over the years had books you know, and built pretty big collections and said, like, out of this you know, 20 books on herbs, I'm keeping these two and reselling these other 15. Um, I've had authors that I've kind of built a collection on and eventually like gifted them out or something. Um, I will never, never deplete my collections of books by Capstick, by Rourke, by Hemingway. I have some first editions. I have a first edition of this book that uh, one of y'all actually got me. It was autographed, and it's one of my treasured things. Uh, my point is if you, if you crack the spine on one of these, you're probably going to end up buying them all. Anyway, there's your warning, and you can always support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. With that, let's talk about our song of the day. Today's song of the day is by Queen, and we're doing Queen Week. Now, what do you think? We did Queen Week before. No, we did Freddie Mercury Week. Now, specifically, we did songs Freddie did that not all of them were with Queen. We're doing Queen Week this week. This is an old song. It's called Liar. Uh, it goes back, I think it was our second album, their second you know big release album that came out that this was on. Um And uh, it was one of those songs they clearly liked. They've, they've kept it around all the way up, you know, uh, in the modern times. And it's one of those old songs that they continue to do at their concerts and all. The song is about, in some ways, redemption, but the inability to, to get there. It's about a guy at a church asking for forgiveness, but no, and he admits all his sins, but nobody trusts him because he's a liar. And he's been a liar. And whether he's truly contrite or not, I guess, is subject to the interpretation of the song. But I think the message of this song really is that once you've lost that level of trust with people, it's very, very difficult to get it back. We, we had a way we used to teach kids this. We had a, a thing that used to permeate our society. 
At the time this song came out, it was still present. It was still present even in the 80s. You saw it even in like sitcoms and TV shows and things like that. And I really haven't heard it much in popular culture anytime recently. The old saying was the only thing a man has in this life is his word. That is a, a you know, we use the term virtue signaling as a negative because it, it kind of is a negative behavior. But there is something to virtue. Virtue is a positive thing, having certain virtues. I think one of the highest virtues a human can have, and there's no need for him to signal it or her to signal it, because if it's there, it will be self-evident. And that is integrity. And you will notice in this, this is not a man, this certainly doesn't seem like to me by the words, the lyrics, or the delivery, a man who is falsely accused of being a liar. He is falling on his sword. Yes, I have done all these terrible things and more. And seeking redemption and not finding it. I'll do anything, but yet not finding it. It's, again, it's very difficult to get back once it's lost. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another episode of the Survival Podcast. Won't you let me in?